Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. I'd like to share some recent statistics from the National Restaurant Association. 52% of all restaurant workers are women. 71% are servers nationwide. 41% are fine dining bartenders. And 19% are female chefs. Let me introduce you to a member of the 19%. Susan Spicer has been dubbed a one-woman industry in New Orleans. She is the chef-owner of three Big Easy restaurants, Mondo, Rosedale, and the French Quarter's culinary landmark, Bayona. Briefly, Susan's New Orleans cooking career began in 1979 as an apprentice to Chef Daniel Bonnet at the Louis XVI restaurant. In 1982, she spent four months with Chef Roland Durand at the Hotel Sofitel in Paris before returning to the Big Easy to open Savoir Faire, a 60-seat bistro where she served as chef de cuisine. Then came Bistro at Maison de Vie, and in 1990, Bayona opened for business. This restaurant has been featured in Food and Wine, Gourmet, Food Arts, Travel and Leisure, and Bon Appetit magazines. From 97 to 99, Susan owned and operated Spice, Inc., a specialty food market which offered takeout food, cooking classes, and an artisan bakery. This morphed into Wildflower Breads, of which she is co-owner. In 2000, Susan and three partners opened Herb Saint, an award-winning contemporary bistro-style restaurant. She sold her partnership in 2008. In 2010, Susan was inducted into the James Beard Who's Who of Food and Beverage in America, and two years later was inducted into the Culinary Hall of Fame. Oh, there's more. Susan's first cookbook, Crescent City Cooking, released in 2007, was recognized by the International Association of Culinary Professionals with a nomination for Best American Cookbook. All right, enough. I'm full. Let's meet and get to know this culinary heavyweight. Susan, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Sandy. All right, Susan, we're going to go back in time. What's your relationship with food? When did that become something more than just, I'm hungry, I'll get something to eat? Hmm. Um, I would say from a very early age. My mom, who was Danish, was a very wonderful cook. Um, I'm one of seven kids, so she was in the kitchen a lot, you know, and always did it with a lot of love and, uh, you know, just made great, interesting food for her. She was adventurous, and and hence we, I I like to say, we developed adventurous palates from a pretty early age. Um, So she was always cooking something different. She actually had a sandwich chart for all our different school lunches where we had the, she had the likes and dislikes and what everybody, you know, would have, you know, what kind of sandwiches she would make for us. And um, I have to say one of my favorites was olive sandwiches. She would cut the green stuffed olives into little rounds slices with mayonnaise on white bread. And that was one of my favorites. I've never seen anybody else do them or make them. And uh, I don't even make them for myself. So that was um, a very loving thing that she did. Well, she certainly was out there. Now, I read that your family moved to New Orleans when you were six years old. So that's basically what you've known. You think of it as your hometown. And so when you were growing up and you were thinking about going to college, were you thinking of pursuing some kind of a course of study that involved food in some way? 
Well, when I graduated high school, I was, or towards the time that I was getting ready to graduate high school, I looked into culinary school, which at that time, back in 1969, was only one, there was one choice, believe it or not, <laughs> one choice of, you know, you think about how many there are now, and, um, you know, the CIA was it, you know, but my father thought of it as a, a blue collar job and, and would not pay for culinary school and, you know, insisted I go to college and had very high hopes for me scholastically, but I got restless and became a dropout. So that was kind of in your DNA, olive sandwiches notwithstanding, that you knew that you had some kind of culinary creativity and wanted to pursue that, huh? I did not at that point have the courage of my conviction, so... Um, you know, I just kind of moved on, you know, when he didn't, when he decided, you know, that that was not the right thing. So I made my way back to it, but it took me about 10 years to work my way back um, after trying a lot of different things and, um, you know, a, a few different career uh, choices that really didn't work out. Mm -hmm. They were not really very serious choices. You know, I mean, I did, I was a waitress and I worked at a hotel and I did this and that, you know, nothing, nothing really grabbed me until I started cooking socially with a girlfriend of mine who was very talented. And she got into the business professionally um, and, and kind of, you know, got me into it, for which I am very, very grateful. Well, explain that to me, because how does somebody become an apprentice to, I would have to assume that Chef Danielle Bonneau was highly respected. How did that match come about? It came about through my friend Pamela, who had done the heavy lifting of, of convincing Danielle to give her a shot. And so she had worked for him and done a, a good job. Then she had uh, gone and worked for somebody else for a little bit. And then she went and, and uh, went to La Varenne in Paris, um, Anne Willen's great uh, culinary school in Paris for, I think, like a you know, several month program. And when she came back, Danielle hired her to kind of run the kitchen while he went on a, a vacation to France for a couple of months. It was supposed to be a couple of months. I think he stayed longer. But um, so what happened was Pamela started, you know, was in charge of the restaurant while he was out of town. This was the Louis Sixteenth, a, a lovely French restaurant. You know, one of the first really French French restaurants, as opposed to French Creole restaurant. Uh huh. I think about a week after Danielle went on vacation, one of the lunch cooks quit, and she hired me. We had worked together at her first restaurant where she had the chef position. Actually, we both got fired from that job. So. <laughs> but I, it was the only job I've ever been fired from. And I, I had a feeling that I was going to be in the restaurant business longer than the guy who fired me. So, And that turned out. Houses for a pun, just desserts, huh? <laughs> yes, exactly. But anyway, so Pam hired me. And um, as soon as Danielle came back, she was out the door. And he, he sort of acknowledged that I was there, but didn't really talk to me that much for the first couple of weeks. And then I just started asking a lot of questions and, and you know, availing myself of the cookbooks in his office and, you know, really trying to, you know, kind of actively learn something from him. And, and you know, I guess I badgered him enough that he started paying attention to me and started, um, you know, kind of realizing that I was interested and and a hard worker. So I think eventually he became my first real mentor. 
And then you stayed there for a couple of years before actually, as I said in the introduction, going off to Paris in 1982. That you did completely on your own? Well, I had had an opportunity to go over for about a week or 10 days on this Louisiana promotional thing between the Sofitel and, uh, and, and Louisiana. And they had actually invited Danielle to come over and cook and he was, couldn't do it. And he was committed to doing something else. And I begged him to let me go with my high school French, you know, I was like, (laughs) I think I can do this. And, and so he sent me over for, for this promotional thing where we were cooking Louisiana food and there was a Cajun band and, um, you know, there was another guy who was kind of a character. He was a cook, but more of a, a, a New Orleans French Quarter character. And so I had to interpret for him, you know, and my culinary French was pretty good because I had kept it up. And, you know, working for Danielle, I I, I made an effort to, to keep it up. I had taken one year of French in college as well. So, you know, so I did my best to interpret. And, and while I was there, I was watching everything that was going on. And um, the kitchen where we were working was had two restaurants. It serviced two restaurants. One was the brasserie, the big all-day cafe kind of, uh, you know, more casual place. And the other one was the really fabulous restaurant, Gastronomique, and, you know, the, the fine dining, fabulous restaurant that they had. And so I could, while I was working out of, you know, the, the kitchen to, to do things for the uh, brasserie, I was you know, out of the corner of my eye, I was watching and checking out everything that was going on for the fine dining restaurant. And at the end of a week or 10 days, I had gotten to be friends with a couple of the guys in the kitchen. And, um, you know, I said, what do you think about my chances of coming back in the summer and, you know, doing a stage? And, you know, and they're all like, oh, ask him, ask him, you know. So I worked up the courage to ask the chef if I could come back in the summer. And he said, well, summer's really slow you know, we don't have that much business. It'd be better if you came back in the fall. But when I went back to New Orleans to talk to Danielle about it, uh, he said, well, in the fall, we're going to open a restaurant in another hotel that we've purchased. This was a small hotel company and locally owned. We're going to have a a bistro style restaurant and we want you to be the chef. And I thought he was nuts. You know, I, I was like, well, I'm not ready for that. You know, let me go back to, to Paris and kind of see what I can do and see, you know, learn what I can before we do this. So, you know, this was back in the days, this was before email or anything, you know, so I would, we actually had a telex and said, please, can I come in the summer? And he's like, well, I don't know, you know, we don't really, anyway, I, you know, I ended up packing my bags and said, I'm just going, I'm going, I'm going to go and just show up. (laughs) And it really was the bravest thing I've ever done. You know, I'm glad I was like this young and dumb, but I showed up at the hotel with my suitcase and the chef just laughed and said, okay. And they gave me a, one of the rooms that they had for employees, you know, which were small, like postage stamp size rooms and, and, you know, shared bathroom down the hall and all that. And so I spent a summer, you know, working there, and it was just a fabulous experience. And I learned a lot and, you know, went back and opened Savoir Faire. You know, you called it being dumb. I would call it being ballsy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were, and probably still are, a determined woman who knows what she wants, which speaks volumes, don't you think? 
were there already were some female chefs that I had heard about and admired. Um, there was a woman in New York that had a small restaurant that I read about in Vogue or you know Gourmet or something. Her name was Leslie Revson. And she had a lovely little restaurant called Restaurant Leslie. And I went there and it was just one of the most wonderful meals that I'd had. And and so, you know, she became sort of a hero to me and she died young, unfortunately. I never met her, but, you know, I always will remember that was the first woman chef meal I had ever had. And it was memorable. It was wonderful. You know, I think... Danielle was a really good mentor, and I think one of the things that a mentor does is makes you go beyond what you think your capabilities are. He was constantly pushing me out of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So I think that because he had been doing that and I was getting used to doing that, I realized, you know, I guess subconsciously that you have to make those those choices and those take those steps to get outside your comfort zone to to grow and learn. And once, you know, I stopped working with Danielle and, you know, and we had a, a working relationship for, for quite a number of years and we're still very good friends. But once I became my own boss, I had to do that for myself. And I have to constantly, I still think about that, you know, when I go like, why am I doing this? You know? <laughs> and then I go, okay, well, now I, you know, I remember you have to do that. Talk to me about you and French cuisine. On some level, obviously, being an apprentice to a French chef, but, but that was sort of a no-brainer for you, that that was the path that you were going to take? Uh, yes, it was back in the late 70s, early 80s. And I had started reading Gourmet Magazine many years before. I think my dad must have, my mom maybe had a subscription or whatever, but I started reading it. And, you know, back then, I mean, the French were the kings and still are. I still get excited when somebody French comes in my restaurant and says, you know, this is the best meal we've had since we've been here, or, you know, something like that. You know, I still get a little frisson of uh, <laughs> pride, I guess. You know, I think like they still, the French still really know good food. And, you know, of course, give credit to the Spanish, the Scandinavians and everything that's changed. But, you know, for me, it was definitely, you know, it was La Technique by Jacques Pepin. It was, you know, Paul Bocuse cookbook. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, learning the techniques, the fundamentals, the foundation, you know, of, of cuisine um, was really important. And again, you know, I thank Pamela for that because she started by teaching me, you know, not recipes, but, you know, how to make a vinaigrette, how to saute, what it means to poach, to braise, you know, that kind of thing. And Danielle continued that. She had learned from him and then he taught me. And so, yeah, and I worked for three different French chefs over the years. So talk about the idea to open up Bayona in 1990, where I have dined twice and the food is obviously fabulous, as is the dining experience. Yes, it was the first restaurant that I actually became, you know, invested in as an owner. And it was kind of a natural step. I was not in a hurry. I tend to try to focus on the now, you know, and what, what I'm doing at the present and do, the, you know, back then I was just trying to do the best job I could. And, you know, I felt responsible. I was, you know, using other people's money. You know, I was learning things about labor cost and food cost and all that kind of stuff. And I always tried to think like an owner before I was an owner. 
So I got a lot of practice because the Bistro at Maison de Ville was such a small restaurant. It was 40 seats with a teeny tiny kitchen. Um, you know, once it got to be popular, people were always going like, oh, you need to be in a bigger place. You need a bigger restaurant. You know, oh, let me set you up in a bigger restaurant, you know. And I was never in a big hurry because I was, you know, I felt like I was fairly compensated. I, I would, could do anything I wanted in the kitchen. Wasn't sure that I needed to own my own restaurant. But um, I had a couple of customers, you know, I, you know, developed kind of a relationship with. And they were like, well, you know, why don't we look at some other places and some bigger places and we'll put up the money. And we looked for a while and, and we looked at probably three or four different locations, none of which felt right. And then kind of stopped looking for a while. And then another customer of mine called me up and said, I have a spot I think you should look at. And when I went over to look at the place that is now Biona, I, you know, I really fell in love with the location, which I, you know, have a habit of doing, which is how I opened my most recent restaurant. But, um, you know, I had always said if I was going to have a restaurant in New Orleans, it had to have a courtyard because I think that's one of the things that makes New Orleans so special. And also, you know, the tie with the, you know, my trips to Europe and eating outside and, you know, that beautiful experience of open air, you know, dining. Right. It, it all happened pretty quickly. So, you know, we looked at it, I think, in December and we were open at the end of March. Would you call that a career turning point for you? I think so. You know, as I said, I mean, I, I always tried to think like an owner so that, you know, I was careful. And but it's different when you actually do own a place, you know, and you you walk through and and then you become really responsible for the livelihood of of so many people. That's something that I that I've always felt a responsibility for, you know, as an owner. I can't imagine what your day and night must be like. Well, I still concern myself mostly with, you know, kitchen things, um, you know, food, the food part of it. I mean, fortunately, our first manager, who had also been a customer of mine at the Bistro, came over from the Windsor Court, you know, a fabulous hotel in New Orleans, and he had been the sommelier there. So, you know, he immediately created a fabulous wine list. I didn't have to think about that. He was charming. He had... Uh, lots of customers that loved him. So, you know, we immediately had a great customer base, you know, from my couple of restaurants where I had been previously and and from Michael's. And, you know, then, of course, my partner, Regina, grew up in New Orleans and knew, you know, loads of people. And, you know, so we started off with a bang, really. It was pretty great. And yeah, so over the years, I mean, we've been open almost 28 years. And, you know, that was kind of the, the 90s. And the, you know, 2000s were really, it was a great run up to Katrina. And, and it's harder now to have a restaurant. It's harder. There's more competition. It seems to me that because of hurricane season and things, the uh, down to slower times has kind of been elongated. It used to be just like, oh, you know, we just have to cook and make the food as great as we can. And, you know, the business was there. What was that like for you? in that nightmarish period of time when Katrina just ravaged the city? Nobody really had a plan. So, you know, the employees were really scattered everywhere from Key West, Florida to Portland, Oregon. Wow. You know, fortunately, being in the French Quarter, the restaurant was not 
flooded, but we lost our entire wine collection because it fried basically in the uh, with no power for you know three or four weeks you know no air conditioning I mean you remember it was it was you know full-on summer I mean end of August September is still basically a summer month here right and then my house flooded because I was out in one of the neighborhoods called Lakeview that you know was one of the first to go under so Fortunately, the year before, I had married for the first time and, and married a, a guy from Jackson, Mississippi. So we had somewhere to go. We were open Saturday night and everybody was kind of going, OK, well, you know, supposed to hit on Monday. So, you know, everybody was kind of discussing their plans. I went home after Saturday night and we packed up the kids and the car and the cats and <laughs> uh, took off for Jackson. And uh, oh, my goodness, you know, all hell broke loose on Monday. In October, we started coming back and getting the restaurant set back up. Our key people came back. And, you know, my goal was to get open for Thanksgiving because uh, we had been open every year for Thanksgiving. So I didn't want to skip a year. So, And were you able to do that? We got open the week before Thanksgiving. That was great. But it was still, it was still very challenging, had a lot of challenges, you know, no housing for the workers. You know, I was commuting from Jackson to New Orleans. I was coming down like on Tuesdays and staying with my mom in Metairie. Fortunately, their their home didn't flood. So staying with my mom and my stepdad. Um, and then I would go back home like late Saturday night or early Sunday morning. I would go back up to Jackson and, you know, hang out for a couple of days and then come back. So it was kind of rough. You know, we had, we had put our kids in school up in Jackson because it was the beginning of the school year. So my husband stayed up there. We rented an apartment up there and um, then they came back down in June and then it was another year before we rebuilt our house. How long after this nightmare of Katrina was Biona back on its feet again? I'd say it was probably about three to four years, three years. Talk about what that must have been like to be inducted into the James Beard who's who of food and beverage and all of these accolades. It's very humbling and, and gratifying. But, you know, I've always considered the, the celebrity or the fame or the whatever to be a byproduct as opposed to a goal. But that's not necessarily fame. That's being recognized for what you do. It's what a lot of kids for a long time, you know, people would aspire to that kind of stuff, you know, being, getting the accolades and being recognized and being the celebrity chef, you know, that was, for some, that was kind of the, you know, the goal, you know, something that they were aiming for, you know. <laughs> to me, it's very, it is important, you know, because it's from your peers and, and all that kind of thing. But, you know, it's not, the most important thing. In your time in the business, I must ask about gender. Have you seen more women? I don't know why there aren't more women chefs. You know, I don't know if it's by choice. I think it probably is a large part by choice. You know, maybe a lot of people don't want to make those sacrifices. I'm not, I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I consider that I was really fortunate because I got to put my heart and soul in my career um, for 25 years, and I still ended up with a husband, two kids, and a dog, you know, which <laughs> uh -huh. I, I really wasn't sure was ever going to happen. Not that I, you know, I, I really, 
I didn't care necessarily. I mean, I wasn't thinking about it, but I'm grateful that it happened. You know, I'm happy that I met the right guy and ended up having, you know, two wonderful stepchildren. But it would have been hard if it had happened earlier, I think, because even once we did get married, I still, you know, work a lot. But I don't think it's just about marriage. I know there's been a lot of abuse and I've been lucky because I guess, you know, I really only worked, I worked for three different chefs and they were French chefs and they were tough, but I have to say they were all fair to me. And respectful? And respectful, yeah. You know, as well, as respectful (laughs) as they were to the guys. Uh The funny thing is all three of them and French chefs that I I went up and did a stage in New York for a French chef, and they all would curse the same exact way. They all used the same phrases. They all said the same things. To me, they were funny. I mean, not at the time, you uh-huh. know, but there, there's a lot of humor in their insults. <laughs> I, I know that's terrible, but I've actually heard a chef say to a guy, you know, a monkey could make a better salad than you. You know, mm-hmm. monkey, you know, so I mean, does that guy really mean that? No, but that's the kind of things that they were taught to say. And, you know, now everybody's saying, oh, you know, you can't, it's got to be a better environment. And I think that's true. I mean, nobody likes to be yelled at and insulted, but, you know, it did sort of toughen up. You know, the pressure of working the line and making sure that everything just falls into place. Fortunately, after, you know, a short period of time, I became my own boss and had, you know, ran my own kitchens. I mean, I'll be sarcastic or I might raise my voice, you know, if I feel like it's warranted, but I've never personally attacked anybody or, you know, called anybody an idiot or anything like that. I just realize that you don't need to do that. Even the front of the back of the house, you know, the French chefs used to, you know, if something went wrong, they would just jump on the waiters and attack the waiters. And, you know, I kind of felt like, hey, everybody's got their pressures. I don't want to be in the front of the house. I know how hard it is to deal with the public. So, you know, let's not have it be an us against them kind of situation. Let's everybody try to get along. The waiters, you know, should be proud to serve the food. They should be excited about it. They shouldn't feel like they can't come in the kitchen. I know some of the waiters are intimidated by me still because they know I'm demanding and, you know, I expect certain, you know, I expect them to pay attention and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, overall, we have a, you know, very good front and back of the house relationship and, and, you know, just try to create an environment that is, It's certainly never going to be stress-free, but you don't need to just create a whole lot of extra stress. You don't need to add salt to that wound, huh? Definitely don't. What's in the future? I mentioned Mondo and Rosedale, but your base of operations for you is Myona. Well, I have a a, a good chef there. I have actually, you know, talented chefs in all three places. (sighs) You know, hard to say. I just turned 65. That's young in my book. That's not old. (laughs) You know, I don't feel old, that's for sure. But I do feel like, you know, my my 14-year anniversary is coming up, and I I just kind of feel like, you know, I would like to somehow just work a little bit less, you know, maybe work smarter, not harder. Um, There's a potential 
restaurant at the where there's an extension of um, actually a new terminal being built at our airport. And I'm talking to some people about maybe doing a Mondo out there. I mean, I still do a lot of events. I'm still in the kitchen. I work at all three of them in the kitchen still. But, you know, maybe just just slowing down a little bit. Before we say goodbye, I'm going to ask you this question. Tell me what your most favorite meal is. Huh. It changes. You know, sometimes when I'm eating, you know, tacos or something, I go, I could eat this every day of the week. <laughs> I'll eat a, a great Indian curry and then I'll go like, oh, this is the best thing. You know, one of the most wonderful meals I ever remember was um, when I was cooking on a cruise ship and we stopped at the port, I believe it was Kusadasi in Turkey. And um, we, a friend of mine uh, and I uh, sat out in the market, you know, outside at a cafe and just, we were actually joined a table of some of the crew members from the cruise ship and we just ordered so much food. And I think we were drinking beer, but it was everything that I love. It was like, you know, roasted lamb and roasted potatoes and eggplant and tomatoes and olive oil and oh just you know it was just the best food I'd ever tasted everything was so fresh and lots of herbs and you know just delicious sitting outside of course you know so that's probably one of my favorite meals ever. Susan, it was so nice to have a conversation with you. And you know what? I'm hungry. I wish you continued success. I'm in awe of women like you. And I wish you continued success with all your culinary endeavors. It's really exciting. Thanks, Sandy. I look forward to seeing you again. Oh, you will. You will. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Bye.